We're going to pick up where we left, at, left off last Lord's Day in the Gospel of Luke. If you're new here, um, we work our way through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. And today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a good bit. And we have some yet to go. We're picking up in chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there is one provided for you in the pew in front of you. And you'll find Luke chapter 16 on page 875, top right-hand corner. Luke chapter 16. Here at Pickle Baptist Church, we believe in the one true and living God who is eternal, who is self-existent, who is to be worshipped and adored and obeyed who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and that all that God does, He does for Himself and for His own glory. And This is a reality that we see in the text before us this morning. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read the whole parable and then Jesus' applications from verse uh, 8-ish down to uh, 13, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help on our time together, I will seek by God's grace to keep it under 45 minutes. Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the count of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtor, debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, and take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. 
Lord, we humble ourselves before you and we ask with open hands that you would fill them. Today we ask that you would fill us with understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would understand these words from your son Jesus. These are challenging words, difficult words. The application is hard. And so, Father, we ask that you would be with us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. When referring to material possessions, Christians are fond of saying, you can't take it with you. And by this, of course, we mean that you can't take material things with you into eternity. That's true. But I intend to show from this text this morning that, yes, you can't take material things with you into eternity, but what you do with material things can be and is carried with you into eternity. Here's the big idea this morning. Having been united to Christ, having been brought into his kingdom, leverage all that he provides for his glory and for the advance of the gospel. Having been united to Christ and added to the kingdom of God, leverage all that God has provided to you for his glory and for the advance of the gospel. We'll unpack the parable Um, as we go. And then at the end, we will look at Jesus' three implications and applications of this parable. So let's read verses 1 to 8 one more time, and then we'll see if we can unpack it and understand it. Jesus said to the disciples, notice there's a shift between uh, who he used to speak to in chapter 15, which was the scribes and Pharisees, to the disciples, he speaks to the disciples and he tells them this parable. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. Verse 5, he says, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. He said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And the next guy says, how much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. He tells him, take your bill, write 80. And then verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then the Lord adds, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, uh, this parable has troubled many, yourself, myself included. Um, I have struggled with this parable ever since I was a young man reading the Gospel of Luke. There are several reasons why this parable is difficult, and not least of which is that Jesus is using a bad example to teach a good lesson, which he does sometimes. In chapter 18, he's going to refer to God the Father as an unjust judge. 
He's telling the disciples to be like this dishonest manager. Not in terms of dishonesty, of course, but in terms of shrewdness, which is difficult to work out. But note again, the first thing from verse 1, we are now being, this passage is now being addressed to the disciples. Now before chapter 15, the first three parables, those were addressed to the scribes and Pharisees. And when we were in chapter 15, we looked at some of the reasons why that is. But here, Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. Now we know from verse 14 that the Pharisees are listening in, but this parable is told to Jesus' disciples. Note also the setting of the parable. Jesus says, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to the rich man that this manager was wasting his possessions. And that word wasting is the same word for squandering from back in the parable of the prodigal servant. The prodigal son, back in chapter 15, the prodigal son squandered, wasted his father's possessions. And the point of the prodigal son parable was the father's response to his son's wastefulness, which was surprising, if you remember from last week. The point of this parable is the rich man's response to his prodigal Servant, his wasteful servant, which is also surprising. Verse 2, the rich man calls the servant in, saying that he's been caught mishandling business matters, being wasteful. He's told to turn in the books, that there's going to be some kind of investigation. And the man knows he's caught. He knows that he's about to be fired. Now, have you ever lost a job? If you've lost a job before, then you know what this manager's thinking. What am I going to do? I mean, this is the dialogue he's having in his head. What am I going to do? Not about to be unemployed. I I don't know how to farm. I can't work construction. What would my manicurist think? (laughs) I'm too prideful to beg. And so what is he going to do? What does a man with questionable morals and no real skill set do for a living? He goes into politics, of course. (laughs) But our boy didn't run to politics. Probably just didn't think of it. But instead, he hatches a plan in verse 4. And this plan, if he pulls off this plan, people, he's hoping, will receive him into their homes. In other words, if this plan of his works out like he hopes it will work out, he will secure future employment for himself by working in other rich people's households as a manager of their estate. And it's a very clever plan, verse 5. Before the news that he's been fired gets out... He calls his master's debtors in to a meeting, and one by one, he asks them, how much do you owe my master? And the first debtor says, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. That's 
By the way, that's not crude oil, that's uh, olive oil. And that's a lot of oil, 900 gallons of oil. That's a lot. It's worth three years' wages for a day worker. So, like in our economy, that would be 150 grand or something. A lot of money. And the manager says, sit down quickly before, before I get caught. Hurry up, quickly, sit down, write half of that. Cuts it in half. Write down 50. That's huge. Can you imagine if your mortgage company, your banker calls you and says, come in for a meeting, and he sits down with you and says, you've been a good customer of ours for a number of years, and we're feeling very generous towards you. What do you owe on your house? You tell him, cut that in half. Well, you'd go away from that meeting just thrilled. And the very next time that you would need any kind of loan anywhere, you know where you're going. You're going to that mortgage company because what they did for you. He goes to the next man and he says, what do you owe? And this man says, a hundred measures of wheat. That's a thousand bushels of wheat. Something like 30 tons worth of wheat. One year's harvest on a hundred acres. And thousands of man hours. This would have been worth 10 years wages for a day laborer. That's a bunch that this man owes. And they have no idea that the manager has been fired. So when he tells them, sit down and write 80 instead of 100, they have no reason but to believe him. And so they do. And this dishonest manager, he saves this man 20% of what he owes. Now we assume the manager continues the same tactic for the rest of the rich man's debtors. At the expense of his master, the manager is currying favor with other rich people and their households, hoping that he will set up his future. Now here comes the confusing part. You'd expect the master, after learning what his servant has done, would be furious. You'd think that he'd put out a hit on this manager after he probably lost, I don't know, quarter, half a million dollars, whole bunch of money. But instead, look what the master does in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So he didn't kill the guy. He commended him. The word commended means he expressed an admiration. He admired this man for his cleverness, his prudence. Now this is this is told for effect, of course. But understand the situation that the rich man is in. If the rich man goes to his debtors and tells them, look, I know what my manager said to you, he, but he was dishonest. He mismanaged my money. He's been fired. And he did not have the authority to cut your debt in half. You still owe the full amount. Very sorry about that. Well, then who? Well, well then the rich man's going to lose his reputation with those people. He's going to be brought into dishonor and shame. He will suffer great loss to his reputation. This, 
dishonest manager has put this rich man in quite a pickle. Because if he does nothing, then he loses a whole bunch of money. But he'll be viewed as generous. But if he corrects this manager's fraud, then he suffers greatly to his reputation. Now, go back to the illustration of the bank. Imagine if the president of your bank then calls you back in for another meeting and he says, oh, by the way, that loan officer who told you that your mortgage has been cut in half, he was lying, he's been fired, you still owe the full amount. Well, the next time you need a loan, guess where you're not going? Well, to that bank. They can't even keep things in order. They can't keep their employees in line. That bank suffers greatly at its reputation. The point of this parable is that the master is commending this dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This manager knew that he was in trouble, and with the limited time that he had and the limited resources that he had before he officially was fired, he used those limited resources to shrewdly invest in his own future. It was very clever. And the second half of verse 8 is a wonderful help. Because Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. Now, sometimes the Lord doesn't explain his parables, but this time he does. And I'm very thankful that he does because this is a tricky one. And he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So let's tease this out. The sons of this world are being contrasted with the sons of light. So the sons of this world refers to non-believers, those who do not follow Jesus. And the sons of light are followers of Jesus, his disciples. Those who know the truth of God. They no longer walk in darkness, blind and unaware of what is right and true and real, But they walk in the light. They know that this world is not all that there is. They know the reality of 1 John 2.17, that this world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. They know there's a world beyond this world. And they know that the world to come is more real than the world that is. Jesus says, the world, this world, will be more shrewd in dealing with its own generation than the sons of light. So the dishonest manager committed fraud. His shrewdness robbed his master of lots of money, but it also secured his future. He used worldly resources available to him to invest in his own future. That the sons of this world know how to get the life that they want in this world through careful planning and through cleverness, even scheming. 
The sons of light, on the other hand, who who do know that there's more to life than this life, often fail to see how material things can be leveraged for eternity. So let me put it like this. I think this is just sums it up. Those of the world are better at investing in this life than those of the light are at investing in the next. I think that's what Jesus is getting at, that the sons of this world are better at investing in this life than the sons of light are, believers are, in investing in the next life. The faithful servant of God will use what God has provided to leverage their life, their resources, for true riches, the true riches of eternity. The point is, Christian, that you are a steward of God's resources and that you must use what belongs to God by wisely investing in eternal things. We are called to leverage what God has provided for His glory and for the advance of His gospel. And the Lord explains some implications and some applications of this parable in the verses that follow. Let's take a look at verse 9. The first application is to use worldly wealth to make eternal friends. Use worldly wealth to make eternal friends. Verse 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now the phrase unrighteous wealth is just another thing that makes this parable difficult. It's referring to money and material possessions. It's it's modified with unrighteous in the sense that it belongs to the material world. Wealth itself is neither righteous nor unrighteous. It's just wealth. It is unrighteous in the sense that it is an element of society in a fallen age. It's temporary. Notice Jesus says that worldly wealth will fail. Not if worldly wealth fails, but when it fails. Money is a temporary thing which, as we've already stated, cannot be carried into eternity. You can't take it with you. Dollars and cents cannot be carried into glory. Instead, they are means to the things that can be. Do you follow? So, dollars and cents cannot be carried with you into glory. They are means to things that can be. It's important to note the phrase in verse 9, by means of. Money and possessions are means. They're not ends. They're tools 
They are not targets. Christian, I wonder how your heart might change towards money and possessions if every time you checked your bank account or every time you checked your investment accounts, you said out loud to yourself, these are means to an end. These are tools to be leveraged for God's glory and the advance of His gospel. So Jesus tells His disciples, make friends by means of worldly wealth. The friends is the end. The worldly wealth is the means. And here's another thing that makes this passage difficult. Who are these friends? Well, they are those, from verse 8, we see, they are those who, verse 9, we see that they receive you into glory, into the eternal dwellings. These are friendships made when you leverage worldly wealth for kingdom purposes. So when you invest in the proclamation of the gospel locally, and the Lord is pleased to bring sinners to faith, and they're baptized and added to the church, we gain friends for eternity. They become members of our church. We covenant with them and them with us to help them grow in the Lord. So the Lord provided temporary wealth, which we leveraged to make friends with whom we will share eternity. When we invest in the proclamation of the gospel globally through sending and through financing missionaries, the Lord is pleased to bring sinners to faith. They're baptized and added to the church, and we gain friends for eternity. The vast majority of these people we will never meet in this life. And some of those people will go before us into glory And they will receive us into the eternal dwellings in the new heavens and the new earth. So Christian, when you give generously to the church, you are using your worldly wealth to make eternal friends. Because in heaven, you may meet someone who was saved because of the financial gift that sent the missionary or that sent the Bible or that broadcasted the sermon which the Lord used to save them. Your money was used by the Lord to encourage someone in the faith to endure through a failed marriage or to endure through a miscarriage or to endure through cancer and a car accident. That you're using worldly wealth for eternal purposes. So if you're here and you're not a Christian... I just just want you to know that the building that you're in, the property that you're on, the pew that you're sitting in, the sound system through which you hear about Jesus, was all paid for by those around you and those who have come before. They gave of their own hard-earned money so that you could hear about Jesus Christ today. And this is because they believe... That when sinners like you hear the good news of Jesus Christ who gave his life to die on the cross for sin and who was raised to life on the third day, they believe that when they hear, when sinners hear the good news of Jesus Christ, 
Their ears will be opened and their hard hearts will be softened and hell-deserving sinners will turn to Jesus Christ for mercy and receive mercy and the very righteousness of Christ. They gave generously, lived well below their means so that the message of Jesus Christ would be heralded from this place to the ends of the earth. They want sinners like you to know that the life that you're trying to build by stacking up material possessions will fail you. It's like leaning on a railing that's not bolted down. It's just going to fall. And they would spare you of that. So if you're not a Christian sinner, repent of your sins. Turn to Jesus Christ today before you leave this place. Tell someone who looks like a regular that you'd like to become a Christian. They'll begin meeting with you and telling you more about Jesus Christ and how you can be united to Jesus Christ. You can be baptized and added to the church and that you can become a part of helping someone else go from death to life. Do that today. Worldly wealth is a tool It is not a target. It is a means to an end. When wealth becomes an end, it is wasted. But when it is leveraged to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, it carries on into eternity. This dishonest manager acted shrewdly to secure his temporary future. And you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are called upon to act shrewdly with the resources that you have to make more friends for eternity. So all that to say, PBC, work hard. Invest well. Make money. Not so that you can have more toys, but so that you can give to see the gospel advanced in Piqua, in Paris, Phnom Penh, to finance the advance of the gospel to the unreached so that the name of Christ would be heralded in all of the earth. You see, this is what the prosperity gospel gets wrong. In light of eternity, this life is a vapor. And God blesses His people not to give them an easy life now, but so that they might leverage His blessings for eternity. I'm convinced that if we could see what we could trade material possessions for in eternity, it would be the height of foolishness to invest in this life instead of the next one. Money is an arrow, and the target is not this life. The target is the next. And I hope you see what this means. It means that your job, the work that you perform for pay, is extremely significant. You see, for the Christian, there's no such thing as a dead-end job. Standing on the assembly line or behind the counter at McDonald's or taking care of patients. All of it carries eternal significance. 
It really matters. The frustrations of this coming week and running your own business, it really matters. That God has you where you are for His eternal purposes. So work hard and make money shrewdly and honestly. Live well below your means and invest in eternity. Because your work really matters. It can be leveraged for the glory of Christ and therefore carries eternal weight. If you have little, invest little. If you have a lot, invest a lot. Because in the kingdom of God, generosity is never a matter of dollars and cents. This is exactly what Jesus says next. Be faithful in whatever you have so you can be faithful with more. Be faithful in whatever you have so that you can be faithful with more. Let's pick up reading of verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So as a pastor, I sometimes hear people say, well, pastor, you know, if... If I, if I could strike it rich, then I would give. I would really do so much for the kingdom of God. If I just had hit the lottery or something. And I have to tell them, no, you won't. You just won't. If you're not generous with what you have now, you won't be generous if you have more. You just won't. Don't kid yourself. And you need to understand, I'm, gonna, I'm a pastor of a church talking about money. You have to understand something about money. God does not need your money. He paves his streets with gold instead of asphalt. He's doing okay. Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He don't need much. The widow's might is proof of that. It is never about dollars and cents. Giving is always a matter of the heart. So if you're not giving when you have pennies in the bank, you won't give when you have piles in the bank. Jesus says, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. So whether the Lord has put much in your lap or little in your lap doesn't really matter. What matters is faithfulness. And of course, this applies to money, but not, also, not all, only money. If the Lord has given you a responsibility, do it well. Do it faithfully. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So if you're serving in the church nursery, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Pray for them babies. 
Pray for the baby's parents. If you're teaching in one of the kids' classes, do it well with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Do it as if the Lord himself asked you to serve in that class that day because he did. If your boss tells you to take out the trash and that's not your job, do it anyway with all of your heart as if Jesus himself said take out the trash because he did. If your parents tell you to unload the dishwasher and put the dishes away, do it with all of your heart as unto the Lord. Verse 11 says, If you're not faithful with worldly wealth, who's going to entrust you to real, true riches? And by true riches, we understand him to mean heavenly riches. The point being, be faithful with what you have. Because in the end, it is not your own. You are a steward. Remember, we've talked about this many times. As a Christian, we should not look at ourselves as a bucket, but as a funnel. That the Lord blesses us, gives us things which we can use to then help others and serve the advance of the gospel. Be faithful in that which is another's, namely God's, because everything comes to you from God. Be faithful with it, which means leverage it for His glory and His purposes. And remember that we're not just talking about money. We are talking about money. But we're also talking about your time and your talents as well as your treasures. These are means to an end. They're not ends. Look for every way that you can draw a straight line with what God has provided you in terms of time, talents, and treasure. Draw a straight line from those things to the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. That is how you leverage what you have for, for eternity. Final implication of this parable comes in verse 13, and it is a warning where Jesus says, don't let money be your master. Don't let money be your master. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So the Lord makes it inescapably clear. While money itself is neutral, our approach to money is not. Money is either serving you or you are serving money. Jesus leaves nothing in the middle. The love of money is a hatred of God. And Paul says, a root of all kinds of evil. The Apostle Paul said it like this, 1 Timothy 6 9 to 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. By the way, sometimes I'll, uh, Christians will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, if I, if I win the lottery, first of all, <laughs> uh, don't play the lottery. Not because it's a waste of money, which it is, 
But you know the worst thing that could possibly happen by playing the lottery? Is you win. I can't think of a faster way to harden your heart than to take away, as an American, even more reasons to depend on Christ. Besides what Paul said here, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Not might fall into temptation, fall into temptation. There are no exceptions. You aren't one. So they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's a sobering reality, what Jesus is saying. You can't serve God and money. There is only one throne over your life. And God deserves to be on that throne, and He ain't sharing. The things that we own can so easily end up owning us. And the desire to be rich, it's like drinking poison and then running to the gym. You might be able to look good on the outside, but on the inside you're rotting and dying. This parable asks a lot of us. You should be wondering, is it too much? Does Jesus ask too much of me? Well, let's be honest. So long as we believe our life consists in the abundance of our possessions, so long as we believe that what we have belongs to us, that it came to us from us, we will always shrink back from giving generously. So long as we're holding tightly to the things of this world, we'll always struggle to hold tightly to Jesus. Until we come to truly believe that God is our provider and that this life is not as real as the life to come, we will always fail to leverage our resources for kingdom purposes. So I want to go back for a second to something the Father said in the parable of the prodigal son. Do you remember what the father said to the older brother? We looked at this last Lord's Day. He said, son, all that I have is yours. Believing this is true of you, Christian, is the only way that you will generously give of your time, your talents, and your treasure. Until what God has done for you in Christ becomes more real than what your financial statement can do for you, you will always hold back. But when you see who Jesus is and what He has done for you, then you will see all that has been given to you in Christ, and then you will be truly free to leverage your life for His glory and the advance of his gospel. Remember Jesus 
lived the perfect life. And he gave his whole self in perfect obedience to his father's will. And for his father's glory and the advance of the gospel, he gave his sinless life on the cross. And there, your sin was imputed to him. And his righteousness imputed, counted as if it were yours. So what is yours? The righteousness of Christ, peace with God, assurance of God's love, of God's care, of God's provision, and everlasting life. That is what is yours. And because of that, because of what God has done for you in Christ, you can spend and be gladly spent for the sake of His kingdom. We're going to waste a lot of things in this life. But nothing spent on Christ is ever wasted. Christian missionary C.T. Studd put it well when he wrote, Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So Christian, leverage all that God has provided for His glory and the advance of His gospel. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We confess, O Lord, that we've not been looking at our lives the right way. We've sought comfort and security in material things. When we have too little, we blame you for not being a good provider. And when we have more than we need, we forget you. We spend it unwisely. Please forgive us. And Lord, will you please enable us, your people, to leverage what you have given us for your glory, for the advance of your gospel, until Christ is all in Piqua and in Miami County and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon, which today's assurance of pardon comes from Titus chapter 3, verse 5. At the end of our services, we take a moment and we search God's eternal word for a, an assurance that we have been saved and then forgiven. And we get that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where we read, He saved us, not because of, our, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit.